Hello and welcome back to our latest episode of our Sabbath School From Home podcast. As always, we're glad that you are here with us. Uh, my name's Cameron, and I'm looking forward to today's discussion. G'day, uh, I'm Ken. Uh, I was disappointed to miss last week, and good to be back again. Hello, this is Luke. Um, I'm free and uh, choosing now to spend my time doing this instead of running around outside. <laughs> and I'm Lachlan. Uh, joining you from the bush in New South Wales, and hopefully my internet connection will hold out. Uh, yes, hopefully so. Now, uh, this week's lesson uh, deals on a couple of themes. One of the themes it picks up uh, very strongly is is the theme of small groups, of Christians meeting together, supporting each other, uh, learning together, nurturing each other. And uh, and the small group, my memory of, of the small group thing really dates back probably when I was about 13 or 14 in college church there was a there was a huge emphasis suddenly emerged on small groups and small group methods and the formation of small groups uh, I'm all in favor of meeting together I guess this podcast qualifies as a small group I'm just wondering how new is this idea is is small groups something that was cooked up in the early 2000s <laughs> uh, no, it was before that because I remember being involved in a small group in the uh, uh, early nineties. Right. Was it called a small group, Ken? Oh yes, um, very explicitly, and it was very good. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, uh, it was the church pastor um, uh, took on board uh, this uh, new uh, method, and um, I, I really enjoyed it. We had we had a we had a wonderful small group uh, that really connected uh, socially uh, and spiritually. Uh, and then we were sent out um, as members of that small group to start other small groups. Uh, the next small group was nowhere near as successful as the first. Well, gee, I better be careful because the people who are involved will know who they are. But... <laughs> Well, they may or may not what, what makes remember it, from what, all that time ago. But what makes it successful, um, Ken? What What was the? Yeah, yeah, and, and that is a really difficult thing to define. Mm. Um, and and I I I don't know what defines it. Uh, it's there's certainly um, an emotional uh, component to its success uh, from my perspective. Um, it feels good. It feels right. It works well. There's a mutual commitment of the members uh, to the group and to each other. Um, uh, and that was one of the things that we found difficult, those of us who moved to another small group, that the level of commitment that we had experienced to each other within the group didn't seem to flow over into the next group uh, when we uh, you know, incorporated some other people. So... Uh, that was one of the frustrating things. Of course, then there were small groups that we had after that that were were very successful. Uh, again, in in that sense that I felt that they worked well and connected with the other members, but um, now uh, and some that didn't work so well again. Now, Ken, the dots are all connecting for me. Bruce Manners was in one of your small groups, wasn't he? Bruce Manners was the church pastor who started that ah, first group. Well, Bruce yes. Manners was the church pastor at Avondale when Avondale launched first groups as uh, small groups as well um so he uh-huh. must have we have discovered the your... origin of small groups <laughs> we've discovered the bruce manners <laughs> is the source of the small group well, movement it seems. I, w- I wonder i wonder when it was bruce found time to go and introduce small groups to hong kong 
because there's a pastor or two over there who are very keen on them as well. I think there is value in... Because the part of me that's suspicious is the part of me that says Christians have, have celebrated the Christian life at all sizes of community throughout history. People have a personal walk with God. There's the relationship, the spiritual um, relationship you have within a family unit. Um, there's Pathfinder groups, which are a bit larger for youth. And there's, there's Sabbath school groups. And there's... Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, fly and build groups, and there's um, church sessions, and then we participate in, in at the conference level, at the general concert level. We 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 have always sort of maintained uh, that the Christian life is best experienced at many levels simultaneously. Uh, uh, you're not confusing a small group with a committee, are you, Cameron? <laughs> what an idea! Uh, most committees I've been in don't function like small groups. Can I'm, I'd, I'd have to say, but so, so the part of me that's suspicious is is why why go to the effort of giving it a special name and identifying it as a special thing when it seems to me a very natural part of a broader fabric. But I think hearing you talk, Ken, that there there is a rationale for it. Making something formal does help the members of the group perhaps psychologically feel like they belong to a thing. Saying, all right, we will be a small group and we'll meet at a regular time and we'll do. Um, much as spontaneity is good, and I think of George Farmer who wanted to write a book about uh, spontaneous worship and how to make sure it happens the same every week. Uh, spontaneity is good, but maybe <laughs> maybe formalising something does really help people's sense of belonging and their level of commitment. Yes, and I think I, I had the same impression as you, Cam, listening to Ken talk about it just now because I I was thinking about this topic before. Um, today's recording and I was thinking well I've been in small churches I've worshipped in house churches I've been in small Sabbath schools um, how different can a quote-unquote small group really be to that um, it sounds like it's it's well to varying degrees um, quite a bit different uh, depending on the groups. I think some of the groups that I've been a part of over the years come close to or, or are very similar to what Ken described, and then some others um, have been very different. So I don't think it's it's that uh, unusual to state that the whether or not it's a is what we think of as a small group is not necessarily related to the number of people in it. Hmm. Although I think it does have a connection to the number of people. I mean, there's it's very different uh, worshiping uh, and studying in a lecture theatre with 500 people um, uh, to what it is uh, sitting around and opening the word after a meal um, uh, with you know, half a dozen friends. My experience, Ken, both as a teacher and as a student of, of large lecture halls is that the number of people in the room who are actually attentive is a very small group. Mm. <laughs> there you go. That's been my experience as well, Cam, as a student. Maybe we could extrapolate uh, <laughs> from this to, to divine services in church, but we'd better not. Well, I, I, I think that is one of the differences, though, Cam, uh, as well. And, and one of the differences is, um, and, and I don't care about the label. Uh, yeah. There are all sorts of yeah. different labels that are used, uh, small groups, just one that's mentioned here, and there, there are lots of other labels. But I think there's a real difference between... Uh, a church program, which is what a lot of our, what what we often call church is, um, and uh, a small group that comes together 
to support each other in their spiritual journey, um, uh, to experience God together um, uh, in a more intimate way uh, than simply a program. Uh, I, I wonder, the three hymn sandwich. Hearing you talk, if if the end if the emphasis that I've seen sort of emerge in Adventist churches around small groups is responding to a particular need that we've identified, a, a particular deficiency in the way we run church. Our, our churches are very structured, very tight to the program, fairly, although although we look down on, you know, papal liturgies and all the rest, we have, we have pretty strict liturgies in most Adventist church in, in terms of an accepted order of service. Uh, the focus is very much on a sermon. Uh, my friends who are Anglicans can't believe that people get up and preach for 45 minutes. They can't believe that anyone would sit and listen for that long. So uh, because in the Anglican service you have a much shorter message, but you have huge amounts more participatory um, elements to the service. Mm. So, so maybe, maybe over time Adventists have just realised that the way we do church on Sabbath, Sabbath school included, doesn't actually leave much room for people to bring their needs to the church or even in a Sabbath school group to to bring their needs to a, to a small community it's 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 pretty much always straight into the lesson so so maybe our emphasis on, on small groups is a really healthy complement as in it's complementary yeah as in complementary complementary to to what we do on Sabbath meeting some particular need I wonder whether it should be more central. I, I think that there's a transition where it is going to become more central, Ken. And in fact, in some senses, church communities struggling with how to do church in a pandemic situation that is restricting gathering in large groups is probably experiencing some accelerated trend in this direction. But I suspect, Ken, that you're exactly onto something. There's no real um, surprise that an emphasis on small groups as a as you identified almost a little bit of a fad or a fashion even in that era of the sort of 90s and early 2000s it probably coincides with a reflection that certain elements of the way we do church community had swung a little too far in some other directions and it was probably a deliberate recentering effort so if you look in the history of christian churches for a lot of the christian history under the the roman catholic sort of traditions the point of gathering together was to was to experience the sacraments, right? The the um, the Eucharist in particular, and that was receiving God's grace and participating in the church community. And what the reformers did, one of the things among many, was they replaced the altar with the pulpit, and that's where uh, a lot of these traditions of coming and sitting and listening to a long sermon arise in, in Christian history. I think that's a fascinating comparison because we look down on on a sort of a blind participation in sacrament, an unknowing, an unthinking, an uninformed participation in, in the sacraments as being a, a fairly shallow level of Christian experience. Your comment, though, that they'd replaced uh, the altar with the pulpit does just going to church and saying, look, as long as I'm there from 11 to 12, or Sabbath school included before that, so I'm there and I sit through it and I listen to the sermon and then I've done my bit as an Adventist on the Sabbath because that's what Sabbath is about, right? So now I can say, yes, that's good, I've done it. Is that is that any more genuine, inherently genuine, than saying I must go to church to, to, to participate in the Eucharist? Yeah, well, I think that's a great question. And in my opinion, it actually gets a step worse because... 
sometime around the middle 20th century and the second half of the 20th century, a lot of Protestant churches and many Adventist churches were involved with this, effectively replaced the pulpit. And it's hard to identify exactly what they did it with, but let's just say they replaced the pulpit with the stage in general. I know some churches literally removed fixed in place pulpits to open up the stage for a more diverse range of expression, such as different styles of music or even drama or um, in the 90s, of course, movement to music. Who could forget? But the thing about it was that mm -hmm. all of these activities happened on the stage and very much emphasized this performer versus audience kind of metaphor of what was happening in the in the situation broadly speaking church adopted the general broadcast culture that was that was happening to the world around it and i suspect that although there's lots of powerful things and good elements of broadcast culture it was around about that time that christians started to say hey um this is all well and good but along the way somewhere we've lost something that we think is important in in retrospect and in on reflection and so the quest for small groups was was the the extra bit that made church church again in a broadcast culture era of doing church. Is the Launceston Seventh-day Adventist Church or the Castle Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church or um, the Avondale College Church, is it a program or a family? Because if I'm if I speak honestly, most churches I've been to function as a program that the focus of energies is on organizing the program the focus on energies is to ensure the program runs smoothly this is not true of all churches and it's not true of all churches at all times but i don't i don't get the sense that people come to church primarily to be with each other mm. uh, they come they come to church to consume yeah the, the, there's a light that is being shed on that by the way different church communities are navigating the, um, this time when we can't come together and meet in large groups in church buildings as easily as we did. So I know at the moment Castle Hill Church is still unable to, to gather in the church building as a congregation on Sabbath morning, which would be our, our normal habit, and it's something that a lot of people want to do. I also know that uh, friends of mine... Um, in Newcastle attend a church that also can't gather and meet together, but they have been uh, having regular, you know, web conference calls when they couldn't meet face to face. And as soon as they could, they got back to small groups meeting in houses. In, in some ways, you could possibly identify different, different levels on that continuum, Cam, by how different communities have navigated the events of the last six or eight months. I think you're right, Locke. Uh, there's certainly a lot of food for discussion here. And and in the theme, following on from the theme, that, that Christians meeting in small groups to nurture and support each other is, is something that has happened throughout church history. And indeed, Jews in the Old Testament, it's not a New Testament phenomenon. Uh, we thought that we would pick a passage from the Old Testament about a very successful small group, a phenomenally successful small group, um, a real highlight uh, from the Old Testament. So I'm going to read uh, from Daniel chapter 2, and I will be starting from verse 10. Now, in the preceding verses, King Nebuchadnezzar's had a dream, and he wants to know what it means. So he asks all his wise men, and they're very wise, um, presumably because they're called wise men, 
And uh, they say, look, we're so wise, O king, that if you tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it means. And the king says, well, if you're as wise as all of that, you tell me the dream and the meaning. And they're a little put out by that. The astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks, it's too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. Sounds like cutting off your nose to spite your face, if you ask me. But uh, So the decree... Or... You go, Luke. <laughs> or it could mean that the wise men were not, in fact, that essential. <laughs> I think you're right. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time, so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. Mm, we might stop there. The story is obviously a really interesting one, and I'm sure we'll draw on, on other aspects of this story and other stories within the book of Daniel. Can I pause? Can I pause on one thing that's not in, at all related to uh, a sm small group? Uh, but isn't it just? Uh, it's inspirational uh, to see Daniel uh, speaking, and he's described as speaking with wisdom and tact. Uh, and uh, you think of what a wonderful uh, uh, gift that would be in political discourse uh, today. Um, and, and it reminds me of how Daniel was described over in chapter 6 uh, and verse 4. Um, the, uh, the satraps and the administrators were trying to find grounds for charges against him in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And how, what, what a wonderful um, inspiration and ideal for those who are involved in government uh, and in business leadership uh, to aspire to be trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent, and to speak with wisdom and tact. You know, Ken, there's got to be something strong in what you're saying, because if you look at it in this story, what Daniel goes and asks the king for is time. And the king grants it to him. Mm. But back up in verse 8, the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. That's what makes the king so angry at the other wise men. And Daniel asked no, for exactly like the same thing. Yes, but the other the other men don't ask for it. They try ah. and, they try and manipulate the king, whereas Daniel just asks for it up front. 
Exactly so, Cam. I was going to say there's a lot of details in this few verses that support my joke about the wise men being more or less useless. <laughs> and that is another one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and moreover, it's something that the king and Daniel agree on. Yes. Uh, because if you look at verse uh, 18, Daniel does not pray to God for mercy so that uh, all the wise men will not be executed. <laughs> He only prays for mercy so that he and his friends won't be executed. <laughs> With the rest of them. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> so it does raise, in the context of talking about small groups, it raises a question that we touched on briefly many episodes ago when we were looking at, at broadly the theme of prayer. Um, why, in this case, what, why is it more powerful for them to pray together as a small group I, th I think that that's a very good question. The reason why I'm not answering it is I've got no idea what the answer is. Why? It must, except that if, if God encourages us to pray in groups, there must be a benefit in it, whether that's for us, just in increasing our level of social connectedness, referring back to our episode of two weeks ago, and meeting some of our own needs, or whether it actually influences the, the likelihood of a positive answer to the prayer, I don't know. Uh, but the, the comments you've made about Daniel being a fairly exceptional person. This was obviously a very functional small group in the sense that these friends supported each other, representing God under very hostile and difficult circumstances over decades. So it worked. Uh, and and th that they look after each other, they support each other, uh, they back each other up. In the story of uh, you know the fiery furnace, Daniel's three friends have a great unanimity. They are obviously functioning as a group, and and they're gaining a lot of strength from their community. But it's also clear that they were they were just fairly exceptional people. What what do you do? Does this, this does the success of a small group basically depend on the people in it having reasonably nice personalities and being easy to get on with? What if you have the misfortune of being someone who's who's naturally more opinionated? Asking for a friend? Uh, no, but I. No, but there have been people. There have been people at church. Every church I've been to has had someone in it, and maybe people say this about me. I don't know, but I've heard comments about someone else that uh, their heart's in the right place, but they're a bit difficult. Mm. This goes right to the heart of one of the observations we've already discussed about small groups. Sometimes they work, Ken described one that worked, and then trying to split and reproduce that in more, multiple sort of offspring small groups doesn't always work the same way. The tension here is the the obvious and unavoidable tension between the mutual support provided by a close group who are who know each other well versus the the more outreach type focus of bringing new people into a group or indeed going and forming a new group by definition you're going to get better personal support chatting with close friends people that you've gone through journeys with you've built relationships with and you're going to feel that lacking if you go and start a new group with people they don't have to be strangers they just might be people who you know less well uh, if it's someone who is a bit difficult it's the same thing again their difficulty means that you it's taking more out of you. The small group is not feeding your soul quite the same way as it would be if you were sitting with close friends that you really enjoy spending time with. But 
maybe that is sometimes what we're called to do to minister to others. And that tension between feeding one's self versus supporting and ministering to others is a tension that I think needs to be really clearly explored mm. within a small group. And you need to really pick one or the other as your focus. And if you don't do it clearly, and if you don't define the group well, I think that's where a lot of the, the disillusionment can arise. People don't find it working the way they wanted it to. It, it, it's often because it's working reasonably well, but performing a different function. Yeah, Lachlan, so that um, immediately leads me to think of a question, which is, is, is the purpose or should the purpose be of a small group um, to, to nurture the members and give them a, a safe place among trusted friends uh, in which they can all uh, give each other energy and encouragement and, and support and guidance? Um, or is it a place to sort of maybe reach out to say a troublesome personality and bring them in and try and help them is it a mechanism for helping others or is it a mechanism well a mechanism for helping someone outside of your your close personal relationships or is it or is that better done somewhere else um and then the the other question is i mean for all that i, I made a few jokes i think this is a really really serious topic um, if small groups are not the place for trying to, to reach out to a person who has maybe a difficult personality or um, a difficult way of expressing themselves or, or um, troublesome views, then how do you deal with that? What does such a person do, if we look at it from their point of view, um, if they find themselves in a church that's full of small groups and they don't fit in any of them? If it's not in the small group, where is it? Um, because I, I've seen uh, people who, many in fact, um, who attend a church for a while. That and and if you don't have formal small groups, a church will still have its networks. Um, and finding not a place for themselves amongst any of those, they have departed. Um, and that seems to me a, a, a regrettable circumstance that that a, a church should work to avoid but and i don't have a good answer for this this is a, a genuine question mm. and and it's a, it's a difficult one uh luke uh, there's there's the practical uh reality uh that there are different that human beings have their differences and uh and often they more easily coalesce into groups uh, where there's uh, like thinking or common interests or um, uh, other other connections, uh, and immediately you create that sort of uh, connection uh, amongst those people, you automatically uh, exclude those who don't have that common interest, that common connection. Um, uh, and yet, we don't want to be exclusive or excluding. Uh, we want to be inclusive. Um, it, it's a it's a difficult uh, dilemma. It is, and it's mm. one that Christ had to deal with. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that he had his 12 disciples, but there was also the 72. But there was um, on occasions when he just took Peter, James and John. And even there, um, uh, there was tension uh, between them with... Uh, John and James 
was it uh, mother um, asking for one to sit on the right and one to sit on the left. Um, yes. Uh, it wasn't all sweetness and light, and small groups need not be all sweetness and in, light. In fact, I, the the story of Daniel, the book of Daniel, has an almost... Um, uh, it stands out from the rest of the scriptures because of the, the degree of harmony within Daniel and his friends, isn't it? They're, they're on the same page all the time. I think one of the things that, well, the two things that stood out to me uh, in this story, and perhaps these things are informed by, you know, the bigger picture of Daniel and his friends in the whole book. Um, but it seems to me there's a commitment to mutual support uh, within the group, uh, and that that comes under the headship of God, if I can call it that. Um, and, and it struck me that that seemed to be a living out of the uh, greatest commandment uh, that Jesus spoke about, the uh, uh, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. And you see that here in Daniel coming to his friends um, uh, and saying, let's pray for mercy from God. Mm. Of course, uh, Daniel's small group was very much made up of similar people from similar circumstances. They're all actually from the same socioeconomic subgroup of Jewish society because the, because the king chose, chose Daniel and his friends from the rich young people of Jerusalem. Uh, so mm. they're similar age, similar background, uh, obviously very similar circumstances, same job even. So they've got a lot in hand. This is very much a group that where they're nurturing and supporting each other. But it would be wrong to say that they didn't have an outreach focus. And in fact, over over multiple uh, events, of course, they, they, they eventually bring, as it were, Nebuchadnezzar into their small group. I, I was going to add to that, Cam, that theirs was a group that was forged under very difficult circumstances and and probably mutual experiences of hardship you know they were a, a subjugated people um, in a foreign land uh, who were not permitted by the by the rulers of that land to follow all of their normal customs and and traditions um, and it does remind me quite a lot um, in that sense of the house churches that I've I've experienced, mm. um, you know, uh, the house church is something which people do when they're not allowed to meet in a larger public place, um, and and that is that is a an interesting thing as well. I wonder um, if there's not some element to the success of these groups that comes from the adversity that they, they form as a result of it, almost. There's a, a fascinating uh, book uh, by an author, Sebastian Junger, called Tribe. Um, and he uh, is a journalist who embeds himself um, with a, a military force, um, a Western military force in Afghanistan uh, for a number of years and, and or for a period of time. Uh, and... Um, a fascinating analysis of the commitment of the um, soldiers uh, to each other um, in the face of uh, adversity. 
a similar experience perhaps to Daniel and his friends. Yeah, this discussion about the degree uh, of support that they gave it to each other and uh, the fact that uh, they were obviously friends um, brought home an observation, uh, some self-awareness that I, I'd never really managed to articulate in words. But I've realised why I, what it is about uh, a traditional church service. Uh, one of the things that I find... Uh, frustrating um, and it's this uh, when we talked about people that have difficult personalities who was it that commented that there are also people in churches that have difficult views uh, that, that was okay. me I'm one of those people Luke uh, this I'm sure mm. is no surprise to you uh, but uh, I I don't think that uh, the Adventist church has reached the full limit of knowledge that God wants to impart, and it seems to me a very logical consequence of that, that we ought to be looking and questioning the things we believe fairly fairly closely. And I hold non-traditional views on a whole bunch of issues that I don't think are central to Christian experience, but that the people I worship with at church do. They insist that um, these things are central to Christian experience. Things like uh, the women's ordination issue, uh, interpretation of, of what it means to keep Sabbath uh, and a, a range of other issues. I, there's no point really going into them except to say that I, I, don't, I don't, I'm not always traditional. And when people in a formal church service treat church as a place where you have to impart information, and often it's information that we've been imparting to ourselves for 150 years, and we have to do it again and again and again just to make sure that we're all on the straight and narrow. Uh, I very much feel like one of those people who, who doesn't fit into the church. If 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 people could say, look, hey, let's all go for a walk on the beach together. Uh, and it's really important that we enjoy each other's company and that we have time to talk and, and uh, help each other with needs and confide in each other concerns and... Uh, you know, help each other in our spiritual walk, stop and break off into prayer groups, you know, as needed. That that sort of thing would be the sort of thing where I would, could breathe a huge sigh of relief and I could say, well, it doesn't it doesn't matter if the person who's next to me thinks that women should be ordained or not because we're actually just here to help each other rather than, you know, instruct. I You describe something, Cameron, that I have long wished for from my church um not always in vain but often yeah. so you make me think of one of my regular hobby horses i genuinely believe that communities form more effectively around questions than around answers and if you have a group of people that are quite focused on reminding each other of the orthodox answers at every opportunity then then it is always going to leave certain people feeling more on the outside. But if you have a group of people who say, the thing that brings us together is an interest in these questions, and I want to join this community with you because I am interested in hearing how you grapple with this question. What sort of answers are meaningful to you? What sort of answers resonate to you with your life, your life experience, your learning, your knowledge, your emotional background, all of those things? I think that's just genuinely more community building. And when you described that hypothetical beach walk, Cam, I, I heard it being a community more interested 
in coalescing around some some common questions. Yes, and more interested in uh, in uh, saying we are f- first and foremost a family, and we will hold gatherings and conduct services that meet the needs of this family. But the services that we hold will be a means to an end, not an end in itself. Yeah. So there's one aspect of small groups that I think um, deserves a little bit of attention if there's some time left. The frequency. I remember many years ago someone presenting a little bit of anecdotal study that they had done in the context of youth groups. You know, a a church often has a a group of youth um, who feel sometimes that they want slightly different styles of expression or slightly different dominating questions in their life because of their age and whatever it is. Um, Do the youth group meet every week? Or do they say, let's have a monthly youth group session or fortnightly or ad hoc whenever we feel like it? And the argument was made, this would be 15 years ago. The argument was made by an acquaintance of mine that if it is not weekly, it will die out and be become less significant as a sort of social feature of the participants than other things that do happen more frequently. So that was a voice that was strongly advocating the meeting at least weekly. Now, I'll admit the small groups that I have participated in in various cities in the past have aimed for weekly meetings broken only by, uh, you know, occasional disruptions and special events. Is this a feature of small groups that does have any weight? I guess I'm thinking of other friends. I have really, really good friends and I'll sometimes go for months without catching up and then when we do catch up really enjoy it fantastic but then the question arises are they really part of that small group circle of friends that i'm cultivating or does geography raise its cruel head and just force uh, those friends to be a slightly different category of friendship and in the spirit of not uh having answers to every question uh, like uh, another associated question of chronology is duration Hmm. Um, so not just frequency but duration of course Daniel and his friends lived together didn't they because it says Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hmm. so that helped they may well have yeah so they were they were most likely meeting much more frequently than just a weekly meeting Here's another question, though, on the small groups and their and their commitment to each other. Am I right about this? Um, where on earth was Daniel in the fire when the fiery furnace happened? How did he manage to avoid that one? And what sort of commitment did he have to the small group to get out of that terrible um, event? Well, and then later on in the story, there's stories that have just Daniel in it, Daniel in the lion's den, and his friends are absent from that. Um, Daniel lived a very long time, uh, very much atypically long. So it could be that his friends had died out by then, by the time we get to you know the, the lion's den. I have heard some suggest that Nebuchadnezzar uh, knew enough about Daniel by that time to realise there was absolutely no way he would bow down and had mercifully sent him off on a diplomatic errand to a far-flung corner of the kingdom. 
Well, surely he should have said, um, I need my friend Shadrach <laughs> Abed- <laughs> Meshach yeah. and Abednego to come with me and help with that mission so they don't have to bow down either. Yeah, this is a job <laughs> for my small group. Yeah. <laughs> so when I talked to my wife about this week's discussion and asked her for some interesting examples of small groups, she came up with Daniel. And she suggested that we contrast it with another one, which we can't because we're running out of time. But I'll mention it. And that was Job's small group. And Ken, I wrote down, as you said it, a few minutes ago, you talked about mutual support under the headship of God. And that definitely held for Job's friends as well. But they don't, that small group doesn't get turn out to be very good. <laughs> but they're definitely trying to support each other. And they were definitely upholding the headship of God. <laughs> yeah, perhaps I'm thinking about a different type of headship. Uh, one that's based on experience as well as theory. Well, it's interesting. I, I almost feel like we should do another podcast on this topic and talk just about Job because that definitely seems to fit a lot of the criteria for a small group. They are close friends. They come to comfort him. Mm. And that is their purpose. They're not there to make fun of him or make him feel miserable, abuse him. They just, they're, you might say, misguided or they have a, a limited understanding. And we don't know what happens to their relationship afterwards. It may be that it all works out to everybody's benefit. We don't know. It would be interesting to take a closer look at it. Uh, I, I think the, there are two weeks on small groups, two weeks of the lesson on small groups, aren't there? Um, I may be wrong about that, but so maybe we can come back to Job. I'm sure Job is a rich, Job is a rich enough story. We can probably find out that it relates to a wide range of topics in the cyber school lesson. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll open it up to our listeners. If if uh, if you would like a discussion on Job's friends in the context of small groups, then send us an email at the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and we'll do it. Uh, it's certainly fairly... Uh, uh, I mean, it's a great story. It's, it's very nuanced. Um, and it uh, ends in a way that's sort of famously perplexing, especially for Job's friends. They, they're really caught out. Uh, so where does this leave us with small groups? Drawing together some of the threads of our conversation, this uh, whole quarter is on witnessing. But a lot of what we've talked about with small groups is not really directly related to witnessing. We've, we've seemed to identify that there are different types and different functions that small groups might have. And, and one of them might be t- to reach out to other people and to give newcomers and, uh, you, you know, visitors to the church and new Christians at you know, a support network. Uh, but another purpose seems to be just for finding like minds, like passions, people who can, people who find it easy to help each other. Those two purposes may not be unconnected. Uh, it may be that one of the things a small group does well is it gives the encouragement and support um and and guidance um and and anything else that you get from these close uh christ-led personal relationships um that people need to go out into the world and be true to 
God. Uh, one of the things that strikes me about the story, which we didn't actually read, it comes in a little bit later. Daniel is not only wise and tactful. After he he spends the time with his small group and prays and has the mystery revealed to him, he then goes to the man, the servant, the, the soldier of the king, who has been appointed to kill him, and he says to that guy, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for him. It is a very bold and courageous thing to mm. do. He is giving instructions to this very high-ranking individual whose job is to kill him. Uh, and without fear, he seeks this guy out when you would expect him to be trying to hide from him and gives him orders. And, I, you know, he does that after meeting... Yeah, he does that after meeting with the small group. So both purposes are accomplished. This small group seems to be like-minded people, uh, similar backgrounds, similar ages. They find it easy to get on and enjoy each other's company and and they're sort of providing uh, mutual support for each other. But yet that sort of empowers Daniel um, and the experience they have of God together equips Daniel to then go out and do outreach work. I mean, I guess if if we are to share the good news with other people, then the news we have should be good. Like, we should have something worth sharing in our lives. That is literally the name of next week's Sabbath School lesson. Something worth sharing. So we're going to get there. And that's a good place to stop. Yeah, well, we should stop there then. I mean, it it would be possible, I imagine, to belong to a church that had big programs and a church that had amazing uh, sermons and uh, incredible musicians and scintillating Sabbath school coordinators and and yet to feel lonely. And may we avoid mm. that phenomenon. And for, for a person in that situation, church is not providing them with good news. It's not providing them with something worth sharing. It's not providing them with an experience that makes them say, my friends should get in on this. So um, maybe that's that's one of the key motivations for small groups. There's some verse comes to mind about if you don't have love, you, you have nothing. Yes. And, okay. he, and, and uh, that may apply the, here. The, the comment that was coming to my mind was, uh, uh, this is how we, you will know. This is how people will know that you're my disciples. That you are my disciples, that you love one another. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and at its best, uh, a small group uh, will be the active fulfilment of that description. Yes. Well, we're going to leave it there. There's a lot more that we could talk about. So, um, but there was a long enough pause that I'm just going to cut it off because otherwise we'll go all night. We're so glad that you could all join our discussion. There's obviously so many ideas floating around in this topic. As I said uh, earlier, if you want to email us, you can email us at the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. We'd be interested in your comments. And we look forward to you joining us again next week.